What do we need to understand about gender-affirming surgery and repairing the physical trauma from female genital mutilation? Let's talk with pioneering surgeon Dr. Marcy Bowers right here in episode 294 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. In these days of the COVID-19 pandemic, we're disseminating as much high-quality, evidence-based information and expert opinion as we can in our monthly COVID-19 bonus episodes. Meanwhile, we still want to support you in your personal and professional development by discussing salient issues of the day. I love having you along for the ride, whether you've been here with me just for a few episodes or you've been hanging out with me for months or years. Thanks for being part of the Growing Nurse Keith. Keith Nation. This podcast is all about you, your career, and healthcare writ large. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, medicine, entrepreneurship, tech, and beyond. This episode is brought to you by EHR Go. Go is a simulated electronic health record with a catalog of realistic and diverse patient care scenarios included. Go helps educators teach a human-centered approach to technology in healthcare. Find out more at healthpodcastnetwork.com forward slash GoKeith. That's healthpodcastnetwork.com forward slash GoKeith. I thank EHR Go for their generous support of the Nurse Keith Show. And make sure you check out NurseKeith.com for all things related to your nursing career and healthcare professional development. Mention the show and you get 10% off your first coaching package. So email me today to schedule a chat. The show notes, which you're going to want to check out, will be at NurseKeith.com forward slash episode 294. Today, we're joined by a new friend of the pod, Dr. Marcy Bowers. And Dr. Bowers, we'll get to your absolutely stellar bio in due course. But the first question I want to ask, just diving right in, is how important is it for those of us in the healthcare realms to understand the work you do, especially in gender-affirming surgery? Well, gender-affirming surgery, of course, is the, is the uh, surgical endpoint for treatment for someone who... Um, you can say suffer, if you want to use a medical condition, suffers from gender dysphoria. Sure. Um, those, uh, those many of us who have uh, ourselves experienced gender dysphoria um, have variable uh, impressions of what that's like. So for many of us, it's really not suffering. And it's really quite a joyous process of discovering that each and every one of us mm-hmm. uh, in in God's image, even if you will, um, have both male and female, and uh, so from a from an obstetrician standpoint, where I practiced for twenty years, we know that every fetus goes through a process that includes female genitalia. For example, all living things have female genitals at conception, and there is a process where the the genitalia change if one is male and uh, a fusion process. And of course, there are a series of naturally occurring uh, intersex conditions between female and male that happen biologically and quite naturally and that many people are, are unaware of. The second aspect is historically, uh, transgender persons have always been present. 
and there's there's a biblical reference to uh, to eunuchs, uh, which probably in my mind were actually uh, transgender persons willing to be castrated, uh, and uh, and in those days, in less less uh, political times, I guess you'd call it uh, less uh, less rig- rigidly prescribed roles of gender, uh, people were actually quite exalted if they were, if they were um, castrated um, because they were castrated males. And this uh, removing the, the, um, the toxins of the testicles, if you will, <laughs> uh, they, uh, uh, this allowed a person to have much more, uh, much more relevance and uh, clear thinking. Uh, unclouded by the desires of the flesh. <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so these people were considered, uh, they were put in high places, uh, priests, pontiffs, uh, even. Um, they were desired as caretakers. Um, uh, and uh, this, has been, this has been the case throughout history, even in, in other cultures like Chinese cultures, the, the, the eunuch history is significant. Mm. So it's throughout the world. It's a part of who people are as humanity. And transgender is just a, a modern manifestation of the fact that, uh, that the, the process that we're all, we all buy into at birth, which is that either a person is born male or female, is simply not true. Mm-hmm. And we do have the intersex community who um, don't get a whole lot of media attention. And we don't, there's not a lot of, not, not a lot of, uh, they get sort of short shrift. And we can touch on that. But for the moment, I just wanted to mention that you've performed more than 2,000 primary male-to-female genital reassignment surgeries, and you are actually the first successful woman worldwide to hold a personal transgender history while performing transgender surgery, and you're the first U.S. surgeon to learn the technique of functional clitoral restoration after female genital mutilation. So you've been and continue to be a pioneer in these particular areas that a lot of people probably feel uncomfortable hearing about and probably feel very uncomfortable talking about. Mm -hmm. So could we dive in for a second into the fact that you're the first woman to be performing these surgeries while having your own history in that particular realm? Sure. Um, you know, uh, there was a, an OB-GYN uh, transgender woman, Sheila Kirk, who, who opened an institute in Pittsburgh in 1999. Uh, she did some hysterectomies and such but for, for trans gentlemen, but she herself had never done male-to-female uh, vaginoplasty. And so that really is the, the quintessential, the, really the holy grail of, of transgender surgical procedures. And so in 2003, while working with the father of this surgery, in a sense, um, Stanley Biber, uh, in a small town in Colorado, I took that, took that over and uh, therefore became the first. Yeah, so quite, quite, uh, quite monumental. Mm. So you've been through your own, your own journey in that particular, in that particular, um, that personal path of being a trans, transgender woman. Uh, yes, I have been through that path. Uh, uh, it isn't uh, something that I 
reference on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I, I think I'm proud to say I've lived as a woman for many, many years and, and to, you know, the vast majority of the public, I'm just another woman. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I do, I do share my journey openly mm-hmm. because, uh, it's, it's out there. <laughs> yeah. And I would imagine that if, if you share that journey openly, do you share it with your patients so that they truly understand your depth of knowledge of this, of this transformation that they're going through? I really don't wear it as a scarlet letter or as any sort okay. of, uh, any sort of insignia. Um, I see. My, my history is out there. And so it doesn't take much to, uh, to unearth that fact, but, mm-hmm. um, but it isn't something that I wear on my lapel. No. Right. However, I would assume that you wear it in your heart. You carry it in your heart and in your body. And when you, when you go to, to counsel and then work with and prepare and then follow up to surgery with the patient, you're, you're coming from a place of truly understanding. And what is that like for you to be able to provide that, that gender affirming process for, an, for another person who really wants to be in that, to live in that new body that really is the one that they feel they really need to be in and, and naturally should be in? Yeah, that, you know, I, I understand what the process is all about. And I understand how, uh, how real the journey is. It's not something that is a, mm. um, an impulse or, or some sort of bad mm-hmm. or um, some sort of catchy new cultural phenomenon. You know, this is something that probably most, well, actually I know uh, the vast, vast majority of people have fought this, have tried to fit into what we were told at birth saying that, you know, you're assigned this way. And so you try to live in the, within that framework, but uh, I call it a gender cage. <laughs> mm. And so you spend your whole life, you know, trying to live within that gender cage and then realizing that, that you have to get out. Uh, so, so when it comes to um, finalizing the process through surgery, I, I do have a, um, you know, I know how important it is to people. And uh, so I, I, I try to bring that to every surgery I do. That's, that's wonderful. And it's beautiful work. And I've had a number of friends and also patients and clients over the years who've been on some place in that particular, that particular life path of mm-hmm. being transgender. So I have an understanding of it just from having spoken with and worked with people who have been along, who've been in that process. And my son has done a lot of work in that community in, in Boston, in New England. Mm-hmm. So, so the fact that you've performed more than 2000 primary MTF gender reaffirming surgeries, and do you also perform female to male reaffirming surgeries? I do perform those. Um, mm-hmm. It has been um, it has been a little bit defocused um, as a as a primary goal in the last few years. Um, not because I don't want to give equal weight to the the gentlemen who also need affirming surgeries, but those surgeries, the genital surgeries for trans men, 
are more difficult to, per- to per- perform for one. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we do uh, a couple of different operations, um, but there are, there's a, there's a variety of choices for the guys and uh, they take a lot of follow-up. Uh, and I have found that as a surgeon, uh, as a responsible surgeon, uh, my, the best thing I can do for my patients is to narrow my focus. And so I've really uh, stepped a little bit away from that in the, in the recent years. Uh, we still perform some surgeries for trans men, but it's less than uh, 5% of our caseload at this point. Right. So you focus on male to female. That's correct. Right. Now, you've also been recognized for for performing more than 2,000 births. Now, did that particular um, part of your career occur prior to this work you're doing now, or has have they been happening simultaneously? Yes, it's uh, it's kind of just been a, a an interesting career. I, I started in a very traditional OBGYN uh, practice in uh, actually 30 years ago this year. And uh, I delivered babies uh, for eight years uh, as my former self. And then Mm -hmm. uh, for another about, uh, let's see, I guess I did my whole, well, about another eight years in practice, but I four years before that in residency. So 20 years total delivering babies. And uh, so that that number adds up to over 2,000. <laughs> it doesn't wow. take much, but it's, uh, it's, uh, well, I would say I it takes it's quite also a bit. an incredible, <laughs> sorry. I would say it takes quite a bit, actually. It's quite a bit. It's, it's a <laughs> lot of sleepless nights and, uh, but it, also a wonderful journey to go through with, um, with another human being. Hmm, I can only imagine. And, you know, before we, we hopped on the mic and before we connected here on zoom, I was just thinking about the, the metaphor because I think in metaphors a lot and I write in metaphors and my audience is used to me talking about them. So that's just part of who I am. So I was thinking of the metaphor of having performed over 2000 births, delivered 2000 babies, and then having performed over 2000 male to female genital, genital, <laughs> genital reassignment surgeries. I was thinking of the, the correlation, the metaphorical correlation between that birth, like a physical birth, and the other type of birth. So what do you see? And if you want to carry that metaphor, if you're into it, if you want to go there with me, what is that process like when you watch a, a man become the woman who she's always felt she was and wanted to be and now is now becoming? What is that like if you take that birth metaphor? Uh, it is a birth uh, metaphor mm-hmm. in a way, and that, um, in fact, uh, many people consider the date of their reassignment surgery as being their uh, their true birth date. Mm-hmm. So it um, it it has a it has a great deal of parallel with uh, with the the natural birth process. Yeah, yeah, that just crossed my mind reading your bio and going mm-hmm. through your website, and I was just struck by it. The other interesting metaphor is that our uh, our female genital mutilation patients uh, feel, uh, you know, they're they've been deprived of clitoral sensation uh, because of the surgical excision of the clitoris, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, and much of the, sometimes much of the genitalia, and it's it's so difficult to watch the um, the angst and the um, 
and the frustration that these women share. Mm. And in restoring their clitorises, which is what we do, we do a functional restoration of the clitoris because 95% of the clitoris is still there, even after the worst FGM. Mm. Uh, but the fascinating thing is the, the motivation for doing so is, uh, is uh, not always sexual. In fact, the, the majority reason that women give for seeking surgery on their clitoris is for restoration of their identity. Mm. They feel that their identity right. has been taken from them. And if you listen to the, gen, the, the transgender patients, they too are doing genital surgery, not for sexual purposes normally, but to allow their identity to match their genitalia. That's what I've gathered from the people I've known who've been through that or, or are considering that or maybe part way on, on the way. Um, so in terms of female genital mutilation, I know you studied with Dr. Pierre Folds, a French surgeon. Now, when you first began performing these surgeries or possibly studying with Dr. Pierre Folds, did you, did you all go abroad to do these surgeries? Did you bring women to the United States or Europe to perform them? And how do you find the women? How do they find you? Mm-hmm. And then how do you make this happen for them? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, for, for, uh, for us Americans, uh, we would say Foldes, which would be the French, I guess. <laughs> That's how they say it. So mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Foldes was, uh, is uh, Hungarian-born, and he's mm-hmm. actually a urologist. And uh, he, he uh, began doing these surgeries in, uh, in Western Africa, uh, Burkina Faso, actually. Uh, when uh, he was uh, in the 1980s, he was visiting there doing uh, obstetrical fistula repairs as a urologist and then asking them about what was happening. Uh, at the time, FGM was just being described to the Western world. It really wasn't known until the late 1970s. Uh, when Fran Hoskins wrote in the New York Times and described it. And before mm-hmm. that, we'd never really known the term female genital mutilation. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a relatively new thing, even though it's been going on since the pharaohs of Egypt. Uh, but I, I, trained, I went to Paris uh, twice in, in uh, 2007 and 2009 mm-hmm. and learned from Dr. Foldes, uh, who at one point had worked with uh, Mother Teresa and uh, so really an incredible individual. Uh, he's done thousands of these operations. Uh, so I humbly learned from him and then brought this technique back to the United States uh, where we actually have as many as 500,000 women who uh, as immigrants were uh, cut norm- uh, typically in their home country. Uh, there are reports of, of, um, of young girls uh, being cut here in the U.S., and uh, there was a recent uh, court case uh, in Detroit of a of a girl who was taken by her parents and uh, and cut. But um, but generally, the the FGM cutting was done uh, prior to their immigration here. I and see. So if you and and they find me because uh, uh, if you do any sort of search or you put any sort of uh, label with FGM, uh, my name now comes up and, and it's, it's just one of the things that we do. 
and that's a very good thing. And you've performed now more than 500 clitical restorations. And I believe what it says, in, well, what it says in your bio, bio is that having led medical missions in Burkina Faso in 2014 in Nairobi, Kenya in 2017, and just last year in 2019, you're, you want to expand capacity by training surgeons to be able to perform this rather than you performing all of these yourself. So one question I want to ask you before we take a break is, of course, here in the United States, money is tied to healthcare, right? So that's, that's a given. And I know that gender reaffirming surgery is expensive and not available to everyone because there's a lot involved in, in that process. Mm -hmm. What about the women who are coming to you who've been cut? How, how can they access the surgery? And how can we as healthcare providers help them access it? If we happen to come across someone in our practice mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who has undergone female genital mutilation? Well, fortunately, um, following the, the example set by Dr. Foldez, uh, we do not charge for the procedure. So I don't receive any compensation, uh, which, uh, you know, I make my work in the transgender world and uh, my money there. So it's a, it's a wonderful place to come from. I feel like it, you know, money, <laughs> I won't say it's the root of all evil, but it, 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 I think uh, uncoupling it from medical care really, um, it really allows you to show the purest heart uh, in, in, in doing this work. So we do not charge here. They do have to pay for their, uh, their transportation and their lodging while they're here and the anesthesia and their costs in the surgical clinic. Sure. But beyond that, there are no charges. So it actually is, is quite affordable, only about $1,700 in total. That's fantastic. And the, the difficult part is going overseas where, uh, where women, we have to go there, um, one, to train other doctors, but also, uh, you know, I can't possibly do all these surgeries, so I have to teach other people. Mm -hmm. So we have, a, we have a, 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 an organization that helps us fundraise. I fundraise, and then I do quite a bit of contributing to that organization. And if viewers are interested, it's clitoraid.org. And then mm -hmm. it's, um, it's a name that <laughs> <laughs> makes Maybe sense. Yeah. It's catchy. It's, it, it certainly is catchy. Right. Uh, and, uh, but they, um, they do wonderful work in, uh, in fundraising. And what's unusual about this organization is that virtually every dollar of what is sent goes to actual care. Um, mm. We're able to do these surgeries in, in uh, Nairobi for about $500 per woman. So if somebody sends $1,000, they can restore two clitorises. That's fantastic. And as a healthcare provider, and also just as a human being and a citizen, thank you for doing that really important work. And I know this can be shocking for a lot of people who maybe have never heard about this, or maybe have just sort of, it's just been on the periphery of their consciousness that this is something that happens out in the world. So I want to thank you for doing it. And we're going to take a really quick break. And when I come back, I'd like to talk more about, about the accolades and the awards you received. And then Take another dive into what we as healthcare providers can do to support our, our transgender patients and those who are looking to, wanting to make some sort of transformation to the gender where they feel most 
they feel they would be most alive and most most present in the life that they truly want to lead. So we'll be right back for the second half of the episode. So now we're going to take a pause for the cause for just a moment to thank our generous sponsor, EHR Go. Listeners, does technology and healthcare education sometimes feel like the tail wagging the dog? You should check out EHR Go. Go uses case-based learning to teach a human-centered approach to technology and healthcare education. With over 300 multifaceted patient cases presented in a realistic, simulated electronic health record, Go helps students build clinical judgment skills while also learning to effectively document within an EHR. When working in Go, students must evaluate and organize competing healthcare needs into levels of urgency while making simple to complex clinical judgments about their patient care, just like in real life. Used in all educational healthcare disciplines, Go can be used within or between programs and is the ideal platform for interprofessional education. Web-based with no software to download or maintain, Go can be used on any computer or browser for in-person learning or for remote or hybrid lessons. Go is the only educational platform that puts human care at the heart of technology. Learn more about Go by visiting healthpodcastnetwork.com forward slash GoKeith. That's healthpodcastnetwork.com forward slash GoKeith. And I thank EHR Go for their generous support. Speaking of support, please consider becoming a patron of The Nurse Keith Show, just like other listeners who value the show so much, they want to give just a little bit each month to support the work we're doing here. And when you pledge, you not only get the satisfaction of helping produce and support the show, you also get some pretty cool premiums and gifts from me. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash Nurse Keith. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith. Also, please consider signing up for my monthly newsletter at nursekeith.com. I promise it's a quick read with just enough information to give you something to think about and some relevant content to explore as you wish. Finally, if someone you know could benefit from career coaching with me, please consider referring them. And if they become a paying client, you'll receive credit for an hour of coaching with me and there's no expiration date, so you can use that credit anytime you like. And you can refer as many people as possible and continue to earn coaching credits. I think that's an amazing deal. Those are my sincere asks of you, dear listener. So now let's dig back into today's topic. So welcome back to the second half of the episode. Remember the show notes that you're going to want to check out will be at nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 294 where you can read about Dr. Marcy Bauer's incredible work, her humanitarian work in Africa and abroad. And also if you'd like to donate to Clitoraid or help other people and other organizations who are supporting folks in the genital reassignment surgery realm and also in female genital mutilation restoration. So Dr. Marcy Bowers, thanks for being here for the second half. And right before we took a break, we were talking about female genital mutilation and the restoration surgery. So if I'm say an OBGYN and I'm working in, I don't know, let's say Minneapolis, and I come across a patient who I realize either through conversation or exam has been mutilated, clitorally, 
either in her home country or however that happened to to come to pass. How do I approach her or do I approach her about this if she doesn't bring it up? Uh, well, that's a very good question, Keith. And, and again, thank you for having me and uh, talking about this. Um, My privilege. I'm very passionate about the work I do. Uh, and and uh, I, I've often thought, why is it so difficult for us to talk about areas like genitals and, and gender? And, uh, you know, I just, I think, uh, I think we have, we're still um, burdened by a lot of um, oppression. And um, whether it's religious or morals or whatever, I don't understand why it, it's that way because it's part of the body and it's part of who we are as human beings. So mm-hmm. it's important that we talk about it and we open our eyes. But practitioners who, uh, who offer care to women come across these sorts of things. And I think it's really important as a, uh, as a, a Caucasian Westerner with privilege we have to walk a very, uh, very narrow tightrope where it comes to cultural sensitivity. And you have to realize that these, these, um, we call them mutilations, but there's a, an active movement to refer to them more as female genital cutting or FGC. Mm, Okay. Mm -hmm. So that we're not quite so pejorative when, and, uh, inflammatory when we reference this because, uh, uh, to the communities that, still practice this and there are more than 3 million young girls that are still cut every year. Uh, I mean, we know it's wrong. We know we feel it's wrong. Uh, the majority of, of girls and women who are cut, uh, feel embittered by it. Mm -hmm. Uh, the men who, uh, who are partners, husbands, uh, and, um, even community leaders who don't, act or speak out against this, they're somewhat complicit in the process, but they too suffer. Um, no one likes to have a sexual partner who, who has pain with sex mm-hmm. or uh, is unable to enjoy uh, sexual contact. Mm-hmm. So no one really benefits from the process, but it is deeply ingrained in many of these cultures. And so we have to walk that fine cultural tightrope when we mm-hmm. talk about it. But with that being said, if someone uh, who is in practice sees that uh, a young woman has, uh, has been cut, uh, I think a good open-ended introduction to the subject is appropriate. So, um, so a question like, how do you feel about your sexuality? Uh, how uh, how are, are you... Are you satisfied with your sexual feelings and practices? Um, how do you feel about your body? You know, open mm. ended questions like that would be a good intro. Um, over the years, there are certainly are many reports of girls who did not know they were genitally uh, cut until a practitioner talk to them about it. I see. But I think the one thing that the, the mistake I also hear of are practitioners who, uh, who stand in horror or they look, you know, they examine someone and they, they see that she's, let's say, been infibulated where there's just an opening for urine and menstruation to pass barely. Mm. And instead of being, instead of recognize this as FGM, 
they they stand with their mouth ajar looking in horror and uh and you know sort of announce who did this to you or you know some kind of some kind of statement of of ignorance uh and and again that that um that's a difficult place to to begin to help someone with um, Absolutely. so recognizing right. it being aware of it talking about it is really really important thank you uh, many nurse practitioners listen to the show and others and and nurses as well who who either work in OBGYN or have just happen to have conversations with patients or do exams on patients and might come across something like this. So it's so important for us to know how to approach it. And I think what you just said, that that the open-ended questions, mm-hmm. trying not to respond. And I'm sure the first time someone sees something like this, which could be maybe the only time they ever actually see it, mm-hmm in person for you know in their course of their career could be pretty shocking and i'm sure we we all in practice see things that either shock us or are or cause us to have a visceral reaction whatever mm-hmm. it happens to be so mm-hmm. we we need to be careful in that that kind of medical nursing poker face that we mm-hmm. have to wear mm-hmm. no matter what we're seeing or no matter what we see on the mri we have to be able to go to our patient take a breath and just ask some questions and open the dialogue. So thank you. That's that's very insightful. Now, we could talk about female genital cutting for the rest of the hour, but I want to oh, yeah. circle, circle back as well to gender reassignment and genital reassignment surgery. Do, do you, is it preferred to say genital reassignment surgery or gender reassignment surgery? Because I've heard and read both terms. Which is the one that we should be using right now in the 21st century? My preference is to call it genital reassignment surgery. Because that's what it is. Because you're reassigning the genitals. And, uh, and more specifically, the term that's pref- preferred in the community is gender affirming. Affirming, right. Vaginoplasty, okay. which is the most specific term to be used. Right. So, as part of many gender affirming surgeries, like breast augmentation or facial feminization, right. Also, gender affirming surgeries, but specifically um, different parts of the body. Sure. Or or elective mastectomies for for trans men. Right. So that'd be a gender affirming mastectomy. Right. Of course. Or just chest surgery. Or chest surgery, right. Yeah. So to make it sound masculine, I guess. To make I, right, there you go. I think that's what a a friend of mine here in, in New Mexico has called it before and mm-hmm. has talked about it in a one man show he's done and it's quite it's quite fascinating. He actually his name is Quinn Fontaine and he does a show called Hung Like a Seahorse. And <laughs> he he talks about this process that he's been through his entire life from childhood in terms of his his gender, and it's quite wonderful. And he's written a book about it as well. So, I know that you're an elected board member of WPATH, which is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, and you've been on the board for both GLAD and the Transgender Law Center. And in 2018 and 2019, you performed the first live surgical vagin vaginoplasty surgeries 
in a WPATH-sponsored surgical education program at Mount Sinai in New York. So Mm -hmm. were you invited to do this so that the surgeons and staff at Mount Sinai could observe their live and see this happening and understand what it actually is like to Mm -hmm. perform the surgery? Well, this was a WPATH-sponsored event, so there were surgeons from all over the world who came, who attended this, um, and there have been two meetings so far, and I've done the vaginoplasty portion in each, um, each of those years, but I, see. Uh, I was able to operate there because I'm on faculty at Mount Sinai, uh, because uh, uh, having initiated the transgender surgical program with Dr. Jess Ting in 2016, so I, I performed their first gender-affirming surgeries there in 2016, and I've been operating there ever since. That's right. That's right. And I also read that you, quote-unquote, resuscitated the transgender surgical program at Sheba Hospital in Tel Aviv, Israel, and you've also initiated trans-surgical education at Mount Sinai, like we just said, but also at Denver Health and the University of Toronto Women's College Hospital just last year. So mm-hmm. you've been you're you're a global figure globally recognized in both the female genital cutting and the restoration of of clitoral function we you call it functional clitoral restoration it's mm-hmm. not just it's not just um cosmetic That's and right. you also do the the genital reassignment surgeries and again thank you for doing all of this work around the world and and helping so many men and women experience the, the full breadth and depth of, of their identity, whether it's bringing back their sexual function and they're seeing themselves as full women after being cut or making this leap from, from the gender that they've been assigned to the gender that they've actually feel that they, where they actually belong. So earlier, we, I know we have to end soon, but earlier we talked about people who are intersex. And at the very top of the show, you talked about how every fetus goes through this process where they're first, they have female genitalia, and then through that developmental process, develop male if they have the correct chromosomes. Now, we often say LGBTQ, but we also hear LGBTQI. So, the I is often misunderstood and often dropped in conversation. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it's also dropped in the literature. I don't see it in a lot of literature often. We see LGBTQ. We see it all the time. So I stands for intersex, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's and correct. And in, in briefly, can you explain intersex identity and what that truly means? Well, again, in this in this area of medicine, uh, it, it's difficult because there uh, there's a lot of uh, cultural landmines, I guess I would call them. Uh, mm-hmm. Terminology can really trip people up. Um, pronouns can trip people up. Uh, there is this emerging ph- phenomenon now where people would prefer to be uh, not just uh, not just um, transgender or or male or female, but but gender neutral. Exactly, and that. That leads to a whole nother um, conversation, uh, but but intersex I think is really uh, it's important uh, one uh, to keep uh, to to keep in mind uh, because for me it really helps explain transgender, mm-hmm. and if you think of intersex as being genital diversity, 
so what, how the genitalia develops from female to male, uh, think of transgender as being brain diversity. Okay, yeah. So your, your, your internal concept of gender identity is represented by a spectrum. And genitalia is represented by a spectrum, which is really an emerging concept that people are beginning to get comfortable with. Mm. So if you thought of it, if you think of it like that, it's, it's really, I think it's very, very useful because if you look anywhere else in nature, there is not a single measure. There's not a single thing you can look at that is represented by only two choices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So genitals and gen and gender identity, same idea. Yeah. And when a person is truly intersex, they, they present, say you're doing an exam, they could mm -hmm. present with some semblance of both genitals, right? Is that, That's the idea, correct. That's the idea. Now, what I've read and what I've understood and, and some of the things I've, I've come across over the years and people I've spoken with is that there are people in the LGBTQI community who they embrace that identity. They don't want to be fixed because they don't feel like there's anything that has to be fixed. And they don't feel like there's anything wrong. And that might be the place I perceive possibly culturally where we drop the eye from LGBTQI mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because it makes us very uncomfortable. It's, mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. outside the binary world and we live in a world that wants to be binary in almost every way, black or white, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm sure you come across people in your practice and you have in your, your OBGYN practice who are intersex. So when I as a health provider come across someone and I realize, oh, okay, they have, they have both going on here. Again, do we just go back to the open-ended questions? Is that where we go when we encounter this as healthcare providers? Well, Keith, I think that just, just speaks to the art of medicine, which is that you do uh, present, you do approach people in a non-judgmental way. Yes. And you really have to be ready for anything. I mean, doesn't matter what you're treating. I mean, I'm sure there are conditions in dermatology that, that the average citizen would, you know, that. <gasps> Absolutely. Uh, but you have to, uh, you know, you have to maintain that, that professional distance, but also a way that welcomes uh, discussion and openness from your patient. You know, you want them to be honest and you want them to be comfortable discussing their healthcare needs uh, because intersex, like everything else, has implications for health and, uh, and, uh, uh, and happiness and, and well-being. Absolutely. Absolutely. But intersex is, is, is such a, you know, again, this is a, it, culturally it's difficult because these are individuals that where this happened biologically, if you will, this happened naturally, this happened through no act of volition on their part. Mm. That's, they have genitals that are somewhere in between. There are conditions that 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 masculinize or virilize the genitalia towards male, mm -hmm. and there are conditions in in XY individuals that don't allow their genitals to develop fully as as uh, male genitals, mm -hmm. and there's a large spectrum in between. And the incidence is one in two thousand, which is a quite a high incidence if you think of a population 
of 300 million people, that's a large number of people. So it's right. a very high incidence and, and something that people are largely unaware of because we don't wear our genitals on the outside, thankfully. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe. Right. I know. <laughs> maybe it would be a better world if we did, but, um, right. but I don't know. Yeah, uh, It's just the way it is. And, and I've read that people who are born, babies who are born with both, often will be the parents will or the surge or the the surgeon will choose which gender they're going to they're going to be and the child obviously has no say in that matter and that can lead to all sorts of repercussions if they just say okay it's going to be a boy and then they do a surgery to make sure quote unquote it's a boy and that that opens a whole nother can of worms for a conversation. Yeah, it's, and it's an, Keith, it's an important point you're making. Mm. Unfortunately, there's a trend against doing uh, infantile and early childhood surgery because we know that gender identity develops before the age of five or six years old. Mm-hmm. So there's really a push, especially from the, uh, those of, in the intersex community, to, to have a moratorium on surgery for these young kids. Uh, now, obviously, everyone at birth asks, is it a boy or a girl? Absolutely. And when you pass the child off to a grandparent, you know, they, you know, is it a boy or girl? You know, it's the most, you know, it can be very uncomfortable to have that Mm -hmm. discussion, but for the sake of the child, it's really important because we know from past generations that when, when we don't allow that individual to make their own choice about their gender identity, Mm. having a surgery that is thrust upon a child without their consent. Again, this is the issue. It's a consent issue. It's done without their consent we were getting it wrong about 30% of the time. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of pissed off, I should say. I'm that's sorry fine. for that. No, that's term, fine. But a lot of angry yes. um, uh, gentlemen who feel that their genitals were, were, their penises were amputated. Yes, yes, exactly. And this would be a whole nother conversation. But there's there there's so much here for us to discuss and we obviously can't go into this right now, but there's this whole thing now of gender reveal parties that when someone finds out <laughs> their child is male or female, there's a gender reveal party. And I believe one of those parties actually ended up causing a forest fire in California. That's Yeah, it's deadly. Yeah. It's horrible. So it's deadly. That's another conversation around this whole binary identity culture in which we find ourselves, in which I'm heartened that the younger generations... Um, the millennials and Gen Yers and Gen Zers are coming into a world where they're they're much more open minded, and that's another conversation about the younger generation saying, "Wait a second, we don't have to live in a binary world." So, right. I'm actually doing an interview with um, two uh, researchers who are also identifying the LGBTQI community, and we'll be d- diving deeper into these conversations. So I'll be sure to share that with you once I have them on the show. They're from a university down in South Carolina. So, oh, great. Well, these are exciting and, and contemporary topics that uh, really have no end to their, to the depth that you can go. They, it's really, uh, they're so interesting. They are. And in, in this day and age, in, we're two decades into the 20th, 21st century, and these conversations are now part of daily life. We're seeing it on sitcoms. We're seeing it in movies. And it's starting not to be this, this what would you call it, this outlying thing that maybe there's some sensational film about. 
this is becoming part of life. And people are accepting that, okay, we've got people who are transgender. We have people who identify as non-binary. And again, Mm -hmm. I just want to thank you for being a spokesperson for people who often get run roughshod over and ignored, especially in the healthcare space. And Mm -hmm. thank you so much for doing such such important heartfelt work and i know i can just tell looking at you and reading about you and speaking with you that this is really seems like your this is your life's work isn't it mm-hmm. oh very much yeah. i mean it's been a it's been an incredibly joyous career uh, and uh much of this you know i never really expected to be doing what i'm doing um mm. it's just that's a that could be another conversation but uh uh, how I got into each of these fields because it, it really was a matter of uh, sometimes just doors being closed on you and mm-hmm. uh, others opening. Well, I'd like to have you back later this year and I'll, I'll be in touch with you and Erica to, to make that happen because this has been a joy and a privilege and I would love to circle back with you again. Wonderful, Keith. Well, it was a pleasure and, a, and an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Nurse Keith Show. And remember to go to nursekeith.com forward slash the word episode and the number 294 to learn all about Dr. Marcy Bowers and the incredible work she's doing in the world that we all need to understand and embrace and bring those levels of understanding into our medical and nursing practices. The Nurse Keith Show is a member of Ars Longa Media, a collaborative network of podcasts, media entities, and others whose aim is to add a humanistic touch to professional education, educate the public from a scientifically informed perspective, and improve lives by partnering to address social ills. Check us out at arslonga.media. That's A-R-S-L-O-N-G-A dot media. The Nurse Keith Show is also a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, along with the American Medical Association, the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, the New England Journal of Medicine and others. It's the fastest growing collection of authoritative, high quality podcasts taking on the tough topics in health and care with empathy, expertise, and excellence. The Nurse Keith Show is adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting and Mark Cappiespeason is our stalwart social media ringmaster. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. And the wonderful Dr. Marcy Bowers bidding you adieu from Burlingame, California. Burlingame, California. Dr. Marcy Bowers, it has been an honor, a privilege, and we will have you back. And thank you so much. My pleasure, Keith. Thank you for having me and enjoy the rest of the day. <laughs>